family, we have a treat for you today. Uh, this is a continuing the conversation episode for the Skillman Church of Christ podcast. And for this Monday episode, uh, we are actually continuing the conversation with the one and only Larry Henderson. And uh, Larry Henderson was so kind to join us at the Skillman Church of Christ this Sunday. He preached a phenomenal, phenomenal lesson called God is Working. Uh, really out of Acts 16. If you haven't listened to it, please uh, stop right now. Uh, go back a prior episode and press play because it's a, an amazing sermon. Three great stories. And uh, he's on his way to Abilene right now, but I thought, man, uh, I'll give him a call and we'll record a conversation to, to continue this, this conversation on faith. So, uh, hey, Larry, uh, we know you're driving right now, but say hello to all the listeners out there in the Skillman podcast. Good afternoon, John Mark. Uh, I've had a wonderful Sunday. The worship was uh, really meaningful, and it certainly, I, I can't, I can't say anything about the sermon, but I guarantee <laughs> it was helped by the singing prior to sermon. Well, that's great. Well, I know you're on the way right now en route from Dallas to Abilene because you have a meeting uh, here in a little bit in Abilene. Yeah, we know too when you're driving uh, that you might cut in and cut out. But, um, again, we're just so thankful that you could just say a few more words to us on your way back to Abilene, Texas. And, uh, you know, one thing, too, we didn't get to really share much of who you are as a person. You know, you went straight to the, to the, to the scriptures, which is, pretty, you know, it's, it's a good thing to do. But, uh, man, tell us real quick, I mean, how long have you been in Abilene? And what is your role there at ACU? Well, uh, John Mark, as you know, both of our children were born to Bangkok, and when our son Caleb graduated from high school, we brought him to ACU, put him in the dorm, bought him a car, uh, showed him how to use the washing machine, and we went back to Bangkok. But when uh, your classmate Rachel yes. uh, got, ready to grad to, got ready to graduate, both him said, you know, there's two kids at ACU, I'm not going to be so happy living in Bangkok. Uh <laughs> so that was... That was in the fall of 1999, and the school had been talking to me about coming out and uh, working with them, so I've been at Abilene Christian University uh, for the last 20 years. I teach undergrad Bible and missions, and I'm the director of our summer mission internship program. Oh, man. So, I mean, that, uh, that summer program is called Worldwide Witness. Is that right? That's correct. We've okay. had over 1,100 students to go through our program, and it involves a, a full spring semester, uh, a three-credit-hour training class. We read some really good books. We talk about things of importance. We work on our spiritual disciplines, and then we send the students out for eight to 12 weeks in the summer. Oh, man, Fantastic. Before you were in Abilene, I know that you uh, were uh, working in Thailand, in Bangkok, Thailand, uh, working uh, with the church there. But man, tell, just give a brief, I know this is kind of hard to do, but uh, you know, give a brief narrative of kind of what you were about in Thailand, what you did, and you know, how long you were there. 
right. Well, John Mark, if I could back up just a little bit. Uh, I went to ACU and uh, married my wife, Pam uh, Payne, who lived on 21st Street in Lubbock. Oh, yes. Uh, and, and, and we went to Bangkok. And then your dad, who also had grown up in Thailand, he transferred from Texas A&M to ACU, where he met and married Sarah Huffstedler, who grew up on 21st Street in Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> and then you moved to Thailand. Then your parents moved to Thailand, and uh, our wives worked side by side at the National School in Bangkok, and your dad and I worked side by side uh, in Asia, working with God's kingdom in very different uh, settings. But uh, I've, my parents worked with your grandparents, and Pam and I worked with your parents, and so we feel a real connection with the Davidson family. That being said, uh, Pam and I lived in Bangkok for 25 years, and we're working primarily. We lived in Bangkok the entire time. We had a house there, working primarily with and through uh, the Soy Four Church of Christ there in uh, Pratunam, Bangkok. Hey, that's my that's my home church, man. That's where I grew up. Where uh, I remember being baptized there uh, at that church. Uh, you you may have been there when that happened. I was there. I took a picture of it, John Mark. Oh man, that's a cool. Hey, well, uh, I mean, we'll, we'll probably get more into it later because I know you have some amazing stories from your time in uh, Thailand. Um, and I, you know, I know some of these stories, and I, I, I'm hoping to maybe draw it out of you to kind of share with the rest of the world. You know, uh, like that time that I know you were teaching at a camp and. Uh, from what I understand, there were some a group of men who were armed came down and interrupted the, the camp. And uh, anyway, I'm gonna try to get to that story a little bit later. And uh, you know, also, uh, you know, very few people know that can can claim this, but you acted side by side along with Gene Hackman in a movie <laughs> as well. <laughs> and, uh, anyway. True. I want to get I want to get to all these things, uh, but the first thing I want to ask you is uh, you know you preached a fantastic sermon uh, today. Um, God is working, God is working through the people of faith, and you told three great stories. I mean, really four stories if you include uh, the story of your sister. Man, if you had, I mean, it was an inspiring message. But you know, if there's any, if you had more time to uh, to speak, if you know, if you were given another couple. Hours. Is there anything more you would have liked to have said about this topic? Well, John Mark, I'm sure there is. Uh, as soon as I finished, we sang a song together, Blessed Be Your Name. And as we sang through it, uh, the phrase, something about on a road marked with suffering. Mm. And as I said those words, it really pierced my own heart mm. because... Uh, the three the four examples that I mentioned uh, include significant suffering or at least the potential of uh, serious suffering. And as you look back, our Lord went through suffering. Our brothers and sisters in the first century endured suffering of all kinds. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I look at my life, man, I don't see a lot of suffering. I would like to think, well, if suffering came my way, I would step up. I would endure it with grace and with faith and 
haven't been asked to prove that uh, conviction. Mm. Maybe I need to listen more and talk less and, uh, and, and investigate and reconsider my own convictions and my own faith. Just how faithful would I be if I would go along a similar path that so many of our sisters and brothers are walking? Oh, man. So, I mean, that definitely is a good point because um, there are those, like even the stories that you mentioned today, um, I mean, the, the story of, of your, your niece and um, uh, her husband who have lost everything, every possession that they've had three times. Or, um, uh, which is just, you know, it's absolutely, you know, amazing. Or can't even speak of this, the amount of sacrifices that the guy, uh, David Eubanks, has experienced with the free Burma Rangers. And, and, uh, and so, I mean, you, you did mention, you know, these, these are some kind of the modern heroes of faith who, eat, who even in the midst of suffering and pain, when life hasn't turned out the way that they thought it would, you know, a lot like Paul that you mentioned in the text who thought, he was going one way, but then God closed that door and turned him a different direction. But, you know, in looking at those people who, who stories that you kind of know intimately, if you were to ask them, you know, what is it in their life? What is the engine behind that faithfulness, that faithfulness to walk directly towards a, a, a fight instead of fleeing from it? Um, I mean, do you have any idea, like, what do you think they would say? Yeah, that's a good question, John Mark. As I reflect on those three lives, or at least three families, I, I can't help but think that all three of them would say uh, they're standing on the shoulders of family members and loved ones that came before them. And they saw uh, courageous faith in the lives of their parents or their grandparents, and uh, they're just continuing the journey that they saw growing up. You know, you mentioned, uh, you know, these three in your, um, in your sermon, or well, the four, but, you know, is there anybody else, if you were to write Hebrews chapter 11, uh, you know, your own version of Hebrews 11, I mean, these, of course, these stories that you share today would be a part of your version of Hebrews 11. But uh, just kind of curious, is there anybody else that you've run across in your life that that you would also include as someone that you've seen with your eyes and describe it to us. Uh, why are they, in your opinion, a person of faith? Well, that that's a great question, John Mark. I probably ought to have three or four names to give you immediately. <laughs> um, but I would think that your dad would be high on that list uh, because he he was such an encouragement. He was younger than me. Uh, but we work so well together, and and your dad and I, uh, we we spent a lot of time on the road together. We preached together. We taught together. We rode motorcycles together. Uh, we both, both had Triumph Bonneville motorcycles, uh, which we rode all over the country of Thailand. We spent time scuba diving together, uh, and we developed uh, and. As I reflect on it, we developed the ability to communicate nonverbal. We would just, and it's my wife and I have have a similar uh, ability to communicate. But your dad may be about the only man, one of the few men that I've ever 
we could just look at each other, uh, situation or circumstances above water or below water, uh, and we would we would know immediately what the other was thinking. And uh, he and I have been surrounded by sharks in a rather unnerving situation. We've been surrounded by people who supported uh, of the Christian religion. Uh, we've been surrounded by people uh, who were very angry at us for one reason or another. And uh, we were able to communicate and encourage each other with just uh, nonverbal communication. Man, well, yeah, my dad would also be on my my Hebrews 11 because uh, I've seen definitely amazing um, faithfulness, you know, in his life and has, has taught me what it does mean to to be a follower of Jesus uh, here and now. And uh, is it anybody, you know, you remember as a child or growing up, you know, anybody the time of as a kid in Thailand or, you know, uh, is there anybody who you also just or heard about that just their, their faith has just amazed you? Well, there's uh, a brother, his name is Gord Hogan, and he is now retired, and he lives in Searcy, Arkansas. His son, David Hogan, is still a missionary in Singapore, uh, but I think it was in 1960, maybe 1960, that Gordon Hogan and his family joined another family, and they flew to Germany, where they purchased two Volkswagen microbuses. <laughs> and they proceeded to drive from Germany through Eastern Europe across Afghanistan wow. and they made it to Pakistan. And oh. at that point, the other family decided that they had enough driving and they put their vehicle on a container ship and shipped it to Singapore but Gordon and Jane Hogan and their three children stayed in Lahore, Pakistan for a number of years, planting a church there wow. and doing a, a great work until uh, until Gordon and Jane moved to Singapore. And then they were in Singapore, I guess, for 30 years before they came home. Oh, man, that's a great story. My goodness. You know, as you know, we talked about, uh, I've been telling you that at Skillman right now, we're kind of in the middle of... A, uh, a season where we're really trying to explore the word faith. Almost, you know, faith is this word that it's a small word with a few letters, but the meaning behind it, it's almost like it's a, a suitcase word where, you know, you can sit and just unpack things from a, a long time. In your experience, if you were to define faith, like what does faith mean? How would you define faith in the Christian sense? Obviously, you can have faith in any number of areas, talking about a Christian's faith. Uh, I was listening to Tim Keller a couple of weeks ago about this matter, and he said, of course, Hebrews 11 says that faith starts with believing in God, mm. and that faith in God, uh, a question that I teach in my my freshman Bible classes every, every semester is, the Greek word pistis oh, yes. is normally translated is translated faith, but it's also translated belief mm. and it's translated trust. Mm. And of those three words, I really like the word trust mm. because that helps me to see more 
clearly what it means. And uh, belief somehow can often just be in your head, something mm. you think. Mm -hmm. But trust, to me, means, well, I'm going to trust the pilot of this airplane, or I'm going to trust the driver of this car, or I'm going to trust God. I'm going to entrust my life to God mm. and believe, believe or trust or have faith that he will direct my steps. Uh, so those three words are the same word, but I like the English word trust to reflect the meaning of faith. Oh, man, I love it. You know, what you have said has kind of been what we've been trying to hone in on the last several, really, month or so, that, you know, faith is not just something that lives between someone's ears, you know, in the brain. It's not a mental exercise. It, you know, it involves believing, like you said, but the belief carries out into a lifestyle or a way of living or a way of treating others. And, uh, you know, trust is, a, you know, it's a perfect word for it because, uh, you know, trust involves living in a way where you hope something would happen. I mean, like the trust fall is a good example. You, you know, you fall down. Uh, part of the trust fall is actually doing something to where you're putting trust in someone else. So, man, that's, that's fantastic. It's a fantastic uh, yeah, word. That's a good, good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Hey, so, you know, uh, I wanted to kind of pick your brain, too. I mean, you are a, uh, a world record skydiver. And uh, that requires a lot of faith, too, right? I mean, like, the, well, the parachute, yeah, that's, that's a trust. It involves a lot of trust that the parachute will open um, when that's been prepared correctly, that's, you know, it's going to hold you up and, and allow the, the terminal velocity to slow down enough. But, uh, you know, real quick, you know, uh, skydiving has taken you all over the world. You're kind of a big name. I don't think people realize this, but, like, people actually pay you to skydive with them like they'll if they are organizing an event they will ask you to come and they'll pay your way just because you being there adds so much credibility to the event i'm just kind of curious i mean i've heard the story before but it'd be kind of cool for everyone else to hear but you know how did you get started skydiving and <laughs> how has it come to be where you are now a world famous skydiver it, that's really crazy, isn't it, John Mark? Well, I think it's I mean, uh, burning. I, yeah, well, but I just, I have to believe that there, that God's hands involved in all this because uh, really I bring nothing to the table, but doors that have been opened to me and opportunities that have come, and I try to use it as a platform uh, to speak about my faith in the Lord Jesus, but... It started back when I was a student at uh, Abilene Christian University. It was back in 1972 or 73. Some of my friends were skydiving at the time, and they kept inviting me to go with them. Well, the first jump course cost $80. I didn't have $80, so <laughs> I, I, I just missed out on it. But then uh, Pam and I moved to Lubbock after we graduated, and I attended the Sunset School of Missions. And I got my pilot's license because we didn't know what kind of context we might find ourselves in on the mission field. And the ability to fly, we thought, might have been of value. Yeah. One of my classmates uh, taught the class. And one of the elders in the church had an airplane that he rented to 
for a very small amount. And so I got my license, and I saw people packing a parachute, but I I didn't have time to pursue that because I was trying to nail down my license before we moved to Bangkok. <laughs> but then as soon as we landed in Bangkok, I found three members in the church there who were involved in a joint U.S. Thai military uh, educational foundation. This was at the very end of the Vietnam War. The Americans were withdrawing, mm. and uh, the uh, communist insurgents had uh, already taken over in Laos. They had a big in Cambodia, and they were spreading their propaganda along the borders in Thailand. Mm. Great uh, inst instability. And so the, the uh, commander-in-chief of the Thai military had this plan where, with American airplanes and Thai airplanes. They would drop a large number of parachutists into a remote location. I mean, 100 or 200 skydivers. <laughs> and they would be spread out all over the jungle, landing in the mud and in the water <laughs> and the rice paddies. <laughs> They would build a school in that location, and then the next week they would plan a uh, jump into some other location. And they built more than 250 schools along the border in contested areas. Wow! And uh, and so then when the communist propaganda came, when the insurgents came, they said, "Oh, you got to uh, believe in in communism. That's better than capitalism." Uh, we need to fight this government. And the local people would say, well, this government just built us a school for our kids. And it really took the wind out of the propaganda that was being promoted by the communists. Wow. And so as a result, uh, it, it seemed to be a real stabilizing force. And it was an opportunity for me and some other uh, Americans who were there to be uh, to be, I was, I hadn't had any jump experience, but one of the missionaries, Lauren Hollingsworth, uh, was a, a parachute instructor in the army. He was mm. in the special forces. And so he taught some of us, uh, the first jump course and helped us get some used military surplus gear. And we were involved in that, uh, educational foundation. And then when the Americans left, well, then the Thai government asked me to continue working with them. And then whenever I would come to the States, uh, I would buy some new equipment or I would learn some new techniques and get back to Thailand. And, and the doors just continued to open for me to this point. Oh, man, yeah. And I know, too, uh, you know, you've kind of been able to become friends with some really important people in the world of parachuting. And, you know, as a kid, I remember this story about, um, you know, somebody that was, unfortunately, um, I don't know if it was by accident, but he was placed in a, a Thai prison. The results of that story connected you with, you know, some of the really influential people in the world of parachuting. You know, uh, would you mind telling that story, too, about kind of what, what that led to, or what happened and what that led to? Well, the year was 1977, and uh, the American... Uh, formation skydiving team had gone to uh, Australia and they had won the world championship 
And after that uh, competition, the team kind of divided up going different directions. And one of the team members came to Thailand, uh, a young man by the name of Gary Carter. Gary uh, was a vegetarian. He had gone to the University of Arkansas on a track scholarship. Uh, he had been a jet pilot in the, in the uh, U.S. Air Force, and he was a world champion skydiver on this team. And through a series of unfortunate uh, events, he was arrested and charged with something that he knew nothing about. And uh, so he was placed in a Thai prison, and but there was so much uncertainty and untypical behavior concerning this case that the U.S. Embassy got involved. Normally, they don't get involved in drug cases, but there was so much about this that just smelled bad that they got involved. And I got a call from one of his teammates, and so I went to see him in jail. Oh my goodness! And uh, wow! And so I got, I became friends with Gary, and uh, I, he was growing bean sprouts in the prison and proving oh. to be a source. The source of uh, strength and encouragement to the expatriate community in this jail. Mm. And uh, anyway, I, I helped him get out of jail and helped him get uh, through the court system and, and be free, uh, released as a free man. And that opened the door where I met some of his teammates especially the team captain, B.J. Wirth, mm. uh, who, who did all... B.J., you know B.J. Yes. Uh, he, he did all the aerial stunts in 10 out of the last 11 James Bond movies. <laughs> so uh, he was all-time all time world champion and uh, the president of the U.S. Parachuting Association very influential man, and uh, he came to, uh, he had, was working on a world record uh, free fall formation, trying to build the largest formation, mm -hmm. and uh, I contacted him, and he came to Bangkok, he stayed with us, he stayed with us for two weeks, and he said, I'm sorry, I have to go back to Texas, I'm making a skydive with George Bush. Oh. And then I'll come, I'll come right back. So I introduced him to all our our contacts in Thailand, the Nike guys, the Transpo guys, all my contacts at the Royal Thai Air Force. Mm -hmm. And for, for 10 years, uh, BJ and I worked uh, together to bring skydiving to Thailand. We had uh, at least three world records. Wow. Numer wow. Numerous events. Uh, the last world record, we took 400 people out of five C-130 military aircraft and built a 400-way freefall formation with every person in their exact correct position. That was in 2006, and the record still stands, and I don't see any indication that it's going to be Oh man! So I mean, by through this these series of events, you became really good friends with the James Bond guy. I mean, basically, yeah. if anyone has seen a James Bond movie, and if there's a scene 
that has someone flying in the sky, like skydiving, then it's either it's your friend BJ Worth or he was a part of the designing of that stunt. Is that right? That's correct. Oh my uh, stars. Either, yeah. He, he was, he's a stuntman in, in Hollywood. He was in a number of different movies as well, but the James Bond movies were, I think, uh, the most famous. Oh yeah, there's some epic... Just thinking back on it, there's some epic skydiving scenes in James Bond, you know, where if, I feel yeah. like they're in the air for like, you know, 17, you know, they're, they're yeah, flying down, true. doing everything, you know. Uh, and, and, and talking, having a conversation. You know. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes they have no parachute on. Sometimes, you know, they're, it's, they're yeah. wrestling a parachute off someone else. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing. And so he was a part of all those. And through that relationship, it really connected you because then you became... Uh, kind of the co-leader of these world record attempts, really connecting BJ to the to the Thai Air Force, and and really that's kind of one of the reasons that's thrusted you into as a big name in the skydiving world. That's true. That's very true. He and I did a we worked well together in Thailand, and then when we moved to the states, it uh, it opened the door for me to be involved in activities here as well. So I mean I know you you and me have kind of talked about it you know uh, you know skydiving in, in a lot of ways for you is like a it's another full time job if you travel a lot for skydiving uh, it takes you different places and you know pe you get invitations all the time to go to these events and I know that you've contemplated over over the years man should I should I keep me doing this you know. Um, but uh, and I know that you don't do something just because you always have a purpose behind it. You're very contemplative, thoughtful. You know, looking at this role of skydiving in, in your life, um, how does it contribute to your overall mission as a person? Well, that's a good question. A few years ago, I was reflecting on, you know, is this something I need to be doing? And I talked to Pam, my wife, about putting this sport, you know, trying to focus on something else. She encouraged me. She said, Larry, no, skydiving keeps you young. Uh, you don't want to do that. <laughs> so then I, I talked to my boss, and I told him, you know, well, I mean, and he said, well, Larry, you can do whatever you want, but I wouldn't recommend it. And so when both my wife and my boss, uh, the two people who would most benefit from me, you know, not skydiving anymore, both of them encouraged me to uh, stay with it. Well, I felt a lot better uh, doing that. But it's been a great part-time job. I've been uh, able to travel, as you said. I've mentioned I've met Christians uh, all over the world because of uh, these events. Uh, there have been a few people baptized. There have been dozens of people that I've prayed with and studied with. And I've, been, I've done several weddings done some funerals, uh, and so it's been an opportunity uh, for Jesus to be present in the lives of uh, people who normally would not necessarily be exposed to his values. Yeah, because uh, you know, when you think of, when normally when you think of uh, like skydiving culture, uh, you know, skydivers tend to be, you know, a little bit like riskier, right? Like a little bit crazy. Yeah. The, the energy and the excitement that drives them to have that adrenaline, you know, I'm sure it's just a, it's a crazier crowd, you know. 
you know, how do you how do you fit into that? You know, when someone says Larry Henderson, like, what do they think of you? I mean, do they know that you're a, a Christian? I mean, how how do they respond to to you in yeah. that environment? Absolutely, uh, they they do know immediately. I mean, before, whenever I go anywhere, that's one of the first things I I try to to make known. You know, I'm not going to be drinking with him. I don't party with him. I am a Christian. My language is different from some of theirs. And uh, sometimes when when their language might drop into a different gear, oh, they are quick to turn and apologize to me. <laughs> and, you know, I, it's not like I've never heard foul language or seen people that are drinking or whatever. Uh, but they really bend over backwards. There's one time, John Mark, I was uh, working in Voss, Norway, one of the most beautiful places I've ever jumped. Yeah. And uh, uh, we, they asked us to jump into this uh, very nice uh, hotel. And they said, once we land in this hotel, they will bring us Long Island iced tea. <laughs> Well, okay, that's fine with me. And so we made the jump, and and I get I was one of the last people to get out of the uh, out of the landing area. I was clearing it, making sure everything was okay, and everybody else had hustled up to the hotel to get their Long Island iced tea. And so when I wake, woke up, I walked up. Well, then this this young man came out with a tray and had these these long uh, high long neck. Yeah, glasses, and they gave me one, and I reached down and I took a, a swig of that, and I was thinking, my goodness, that's the worst iced tea I've ever tasted. <laughs> and then, then out of my my peripheral hearing, I was hearing, Larry, no. <laughs> oh. and, and one of my friends came running up and took it away from me. I said. Oh, that was terrible. I see. <laughs> some mixed drink full of vodka or something. Uh, oh, but they were hilarious. willing to take a hit for me. They were, were drinking whatever it was that they beat for me. <laughs> oh, man, that's a great story. Hey, well, you know, I know we're coming up, up to our time um, that I promised I'd take from you. Uh, but uh, just two more stories before for, the, for my brothers and sisters, the women and men of faith at Skillman. The story of how in the world did you get in to be a speaking part with Gene Hackman? Because uh, the movie is called Act of Valor. Is that right? Uncommon Valor. Oh, yeah, un Uncommon Valor. So it's called Uncommon Valor. And if you go... Anyone goes to see that movie, and it's in the first three minutes of the movie. The, the scene takes place in like a refugee camp or something, and uh, you are like a humanitarian worker, and uh, you're walking Gene Hackman around, and you have a speaking role in this movie. So how in the world were you a missionary in Thailand, and also on the, <laughs> you were also an actor as well? That's a really good question, John Mark. And it's another uh, occasion when God just put me in a situation and let me experience something that was me. Because what happened was my friends who was working in that uh, educational foundation told me, he said, Larry, uh, we're making a Hollywood 
that has a movie that they're making here in Bangkok, and we really need you to come and, and help us. And I said, no, I, I don't have time for that. Uh, I'm not interested. And he called. The third time he called me, I said, well, okay. So uh, he said he needed several people, so I contacted your dad. I contacted Lauren Collinsworth. I contacted Art Lynch, the three guys I was working with, and we all went to the uh, to the scene of this uh, filming. And for whatever reason, they chose your dad and Art Lynch <laughs> and myself. And so one person, he said, he said, uh, Mr. Sue, uh, would you be interested in a speaking role? And I said, well, he said, would you read this for us? He gave me a document, and I don't remember what it was, just reading. There wasn't anything to it. And they said, uh, well, we would like to have you in our movie and do the speaking role. And I said, well, you know, that'd be fine, but I, I wouldn't want to say anything profane. <laughs> and the guy just went bonkers. He said, profane? What do you mean profane? What kind of movie do you think I make? And so I, I said, well, I wouldn't want to say anything obscene. Obscene? What do you mean obscene? And so I was, I was so blown away. I, I just thanked him and I walked away. Because I remember my dad talking about you know, Christians that went to Hollywood and lost their faith or whatever. <laughs> well, so I didn't want to do that. Yeah. So I was, and I just forgot about it. And then maybe a week later, I got a phone call at church. And the guy said, uh, Mr. Henderson, this is, and I don't remember his name. Uh, I'm the director of Uncommon Valor. Uh, are you still willing to be in our movie? And I said, well, yes. He said, we have you cast as a man of peace. Is that okay? Uh. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, okay. I'd be happy to. And uh, so that was kind of funny. Yeah, that's a great story. Oh, man, I love it. So, yeah, you're in that movie. Do you still remember the line that you said? <laughs> it had something to do with... Because um, Gene, according to this story, was... His son was a, a prisoner of war in, in Vietnam, and these were refugees that had come out of Vietnam, and somebody had seen his son reputed, uh, evidently, and had a picture of him, and, and so he was trying to locate this refugee who could help him find his son. And so that's kind of what my connection was. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, well, I hope the, the listeners out there get a chance to go watch that movie. You know, the people, the people in Hollywood may wonder, why, why is there a spike in renting Uncommon Valor? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. well, hey, well, I know I, I promised them one more story, but can we just do one, that one story you told me a while back about how you were teaching at a camp. I think it was Cha'am Camp or something in Thailand. And from what I remember, armed, like a guerrilla group came down with guns. Am I remembering this correctly, or is this a true story, or is this just something I dream? Oh, yeah. Yeah, John Mark, this was a really uh, intense couple of days, or one day in my life. Uh, we had a Bible camp down about 200 kilometers south of Bangkok, just north of a small town called Ulihan. Oh, yeah. And it was, yeah. It, it was remote, it was right on the beach, but uh, there was no other uh, buildings or houses in the area. No electricity, no water, 
uh, that we had this little piece of land. And we had uh, an open air meeting place to see about 100 or 150 people. But, and, and we had one little cabin that normally all the girls would sit in. It was a two-story cabin. Mm -hmm. um, but I was the director of the camp, and we had, I don't know, two or three or four hundred students, mostly young people there. And it had been a, a really good week. And it was Friday night. We were going to go back home on Saturday. And on Friday night, our generator finally just died. We kind of kept it going. Uh, yeah. the week, but it finally died and so I just said okay we're done and everybody you know lying down let's uh, get ready go to bed yeah and, uh, <laughs> and, and then we'll go home tomorrow yeah and so uh, at that time my son Caleb who's a couple years older than you he was yeah. just he might have been uh, 18 months old or 12 or 14 months a little over a year old but uh, we had our Volkswagen there, and I was sleeping on top of the Volkswagen. Caleb was on the floor inside the Volkswagen, and my wife Pam was on a cot there wow. by the door. Yeah. And so everybody, you know, it got quiet, and everybody went to bed. And so I climbed up on top of the car, and I was just falling asleep. And Pam said, Larry... There's somebody going through our stuff. Uh-oh. And, and like uh, in the trunk of the uh, Volkswagen bus. Yeah. And I sat up and I looked around. I didn't see anybody. I said, are you sure? I don't see anybody. She said, yes. They just jerked the sheet off of me. She was covered with the sheet to keep the mosquitoes off. And oh. uh, when she said somebody jerked the sheet off, that got my attention. Yeah. And I turned and looked back towards the middle of the camp, and I, in the kind of the reflection of the moonlight, I saw several people walking around. And I thought, oh my goodness, those students, I told them to go to bed, but it's the last night of camp, and they're having a big time. And, and so I jumped off the van, and I was running up to the middle of the camp to, you know, <laughs> bark at them. And as I went by one of the vans... My brother Skip Rogers out of the darkness said, yeah. "Be careful, Larry. They all have guns." What he said that? Oh my goodness! Yeah. And so I hit the brakes, and sure enough, here is a gang uh, of men armed with military-grade weapons. They had M16s, M79 grenade launchers. They were armed to the teeth. And this is this, you guys. You're at a church camp. At a church camp, And yes. these guys come in. Oh, my goodness. I continue. Sorry. Well, but, but they were just walking around. They they weren't impolite or rude, but they, if they would see anything, they would just take it. Later, we found out that they had stolen my my American Levi's. Oh. And I, oh. I was really upset because <laughs> I couldn't buy clothes that fit me in Thailand. But yeah, somebody had brought me these. Anyway... Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they, they just talk, want to know what we're doing, and I explained, and, and you know, I told them, we're just here with kids, and, and so they just kind of sauntered off, 
and left. And I thought, wow, you know, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> and the Thai leaders and the other missionary leaders were there and we're kind of talking about, about you know, what had just happened. And oh. we, we just, we'd just been robbed. Oh, and I remember. But then, John Mark, I remember to this day. Yeah. Looking across the little soccer field we had. Yeah. Here, here they came again. Oh, my goodness. And they were spread out, and they had their guns at the ready, and they were very nervous and jumpy and belligerent. Evidently, they had got back to their rendezvous point, and somebody was missing. Oh, no. And they they thought we had knocked him off. Oh. And so they came back looking for him, and they started rousting the girls up in the cabin and, you know, poking guns in people's chests and, and, and until finally, uh, oh my he suggested that well maybe your friend had gone back by a different route. Yeah. Because oh. we didn't we didn't attack him. We didn't capture him. Yeah. We wouldn't do that. And so they backed away. They didn't shoot, but they had their guns at the ready. And I still remember them saying, "Ying toy, ying toy," which means fire and retreat. But oh. they backed. They backed away from us, you know, covering us to make sure we didn't chase them or something. Oh my! And then goodness. they they disappeared, and that that was really traumatizing. And the yeah. embassy got word of it, and uh, they called me in for a, a natural action report, and they put this all on their their board of activities. And they but later the yeah. police came to us and they said, you know, we found out. Uh, this criminal gang in a town about 20 miles away, we found out who it was that, that uh, robbed your camp. And if you want us to, we can go and arrest them. Oh. But, if we, but if we do that, you're going to have enemies down here. Yeah. But if, you're gonna, if you, you have another option, and that is if you decide not to press charges, yeah. we will go and tell this, this gang you know who they are, but you decide not to uh, press charges because you want to be their friend, and which is, of course, what we did. Yeah, yeah. And now, now, now that area is much more developed. There's electricity. There's running water. Yeah, hotels. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And for a long yes, hotels is right. For a long time, we had police guards to come, but quite frankly, uh, they were scarier than the bad guys because they would <laughs> sit around and they'd bring out their whiskey and they'd have their weapons oh, and it's yeah. like oh, oh man we yeah. don't want this either yeah exactly so, man I guess I wish you would have told the uh, police officers that all you wanted were your Levi's back <laughs> yeah well I think my Levi's by then were long gone I don't know <laughs> last year that same camp yeah it could have been two years ago the same week they had 700 Christians there. Many of the young people who had been uh, at the camp when the robbers came, they had been young people then. Now they are parents with their own children, oh, in wow. some cases grandparents. And so it's uh, a great, it's been a great tool and a testimony to people's faith who uh, endured uh, some challenges there. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, nobody yes. was injured, uh, but uh, it certainly got our attention there for several <laughs> that, years. That is, that's one of the most epic stories, Larry. And that's like, 
You know, that might be the sequel to the free Burma Rangers movie. It's this one, <laughs> this story. Yeah. 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 Hey, well, uh, man, Larry, this is beyond good. Thank you. This is great. Uh, what a way that you bless our community. Thank you from the depths of our heart. Thank you for sharing these amazing stories. Thank you for encouraging us, for inspiring us today to take that next step, whatever that is. Um, you know, like you, you said so eloquently today, it, it doesn't mean we have to move to Sudan, but I think each one of us, ha- we know at our very core what that next step is. Like we all know what it is, but uh, your message today really encouraged us to have the courage to go ahead and do it. So uh, thank you so much. We hope to have you back at Skillman, and uh, we are so grateful for your time, and may God bless you, and may you <laughs> arrive at Abilene safely. Thank you, John Mark. I'm about uh, 23 miles out right now, so it won't be long. All right. Well, God bless you, and have a great day. Mark. God bless you. Take care.